Welcome to Defiant Health Radio, a place where you can count on hearing about the truth in health, including new ideas and practices that can take your health to the next level. I also cover basic health issues, not healthcare issues, because modern healthcare is largely a failure, a failure to provide genuine health. So I'm going to discuss basic issues such as natural ways to reverse type 2 diabetes, uh, how to lose weight without limiting calories, why cholesterol is a waste of your time and money, how to reverse common conditions such as fatty liver, and many other topics all designed to empower you in health. I'm your host, Dr. William Davis, cardiologist and author of the Wheat Belly and Undoctored Books. Later in the podcast, I shall introduce Defiant Health's newest sponsor, BiotaQuest, a source for some of the most interesting probiotics available today, including Sugar Shift, a product of research conducted by famed microbiologist Dr. Raul Cano. Plenty more on that later in the podcast. I call this episode of Defiant Health the truth about food intolerances. And I call it the truth because the emerging science is telling us that it's something very different than what most people think. So it's becoming very common, by the way, to have food intolerances. One of the difficulties in quantifying just how many people have this is a failure to have a consistent, uniform definition of a food intolerance. If you get a stomach ache from eating eggs, is that a food intolerance? If you get diarrhea from eating tomatoes, is that a food intolerance? If you get a skin rash that you think is attributable, say, to wheat consumption, wheat and grain consumption, is that a food? So there's not a uniform definition of food intolerance. There is some agreement on what constitutes a food allergy, but food intolerance does not have a single uniform description. But it is becoming clear that many, many people are becoming intolerant in a variety of ways to numerous foods. As an attempt to just get some idea of how common this is, let's take irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, that afflicts about 30 to 35 million Americans that have been diagnosed with this condition. And there's estimated to be another 30 to 35 million people who have this kind of condition yet have not been formally diagnosed, but simply quietly grin and bear it. So that's about 60 million people, 70 million people who have irritable bowel syndrome. It's estimated that between 40 and 84% of people with IBS have some form of food intolerance. Uh, in other words, if you have IBS and cramps and diarrhea and bloating, it's very common to have intolerance to some food. So if there are 60 to 70 million people with IBS, and of those people, 40 to 84% have some form of food intolerance, you can see that's about 30 million people right there with some form of food intolerance. Food allergy is more easily defined, and we have good information on that, about 7%. 7% of people have food allergies, much more likely in children. So food intolerances in all their forms, despite the lack of a uniform definition, is very common. Now, one very important insight into food intolerances is to recognize that food intolerances are a result of something else. They're not the cause. So if you're intolerant to, say, peanuts or eggplant, and it causes some symptom, that's not the cause. That's just the near-term cause. There's something underlying, an underlying cause that has made you intolerant to those foods. And I can't stress this enough. It's important that you identify those underlying causes. Because if you don't, there's trouble ahead. In other words, the food intolerance is nothing more than a warning sign to you that something is wrong. And if you don't address it, 
All kinds of bad things in health can happen. You can gain a lot of weight. You can become obese, even if you follow a good diet and exercise. You can become increasingly insulin resistant, the process that leads to type 2 diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure, Alzheimer's dementia. You can develop a variety of gastrointestinal cancers, from pancreatic cancer to biliary tract cancer to colon cancer. You're more prone to neurodegenerative conditions, such as Parkinson's disease and multiple sclerosis, and you're more prone to autoimmune conditions. In other words, the food intolerance is a sign. Think of it as a sign to you that something is wrong. Now, the food intolerance can take many different forms. It could be in the forms of intolerance, the so-called FODMAPs, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, essentially sugars and sugar alcohols. It could be an intolerance to foods in the nightshade family. Nightshades include foods like peppers and eggplant, fructose-containing foods such as fruit or honey, histamine-containing foods, especially fermented cheeses, wines, fermented vegetables, legumes like black beans, white beans, chickpeas, hummus, kidney beans, other beans, lectin-containing foods, especially nuts and seeds. Some people are intolerant to eggs, others to soy. Some cases, not all cases, but some cases of lactose intolerance can be a food intolerance that signals something else, especially if you acquire lactose intolerance as an adult. And then many people come at this by way of variety of food intolerance testing, such as looking for IgG antibodies against various foods. And people who undergo such tests often walk away with a list of 30, 40, or more foods that they're presumably intolerant to. And by the way, I don't include wheat or gluten in the list because in my view, every human being is intolerant to these pseudo foods and their numerous toxic components. That's a whole conversation of its own. I refer you to my other podcasts, my Wheat Belly blog, my Wheat Belly books, etc., for a more thorough conversation on why all humans are intolerant to wheat and grains. You may not perceive it. You might perceive this abdominal pain or joint pain, but you may not perceive it because there are many imperceptible effects. But if you have these food intolerances, these, of course, are not imaginary. If you have diarrhea after having a fructose-containing piece of fruit, that's not in your imagination. If you have joint pain that lasts four days after eating a red pepper, that is not in your imagination. These are real phenomena. So even though the real cause is not the food intolerance itself, it doesn't mean these are imaginary. Food intolerances are a very real thing. Now think about it. Food intolerances make no evolutionary sense. Could you imagine somebody who's a hunter-gatherer and has to hunt down with a spear, axe, club, or bow and out to kill his next meal, or dig in the dirt for roots and tubers or gather berries? Being a hunter-gatherer, living outdoors, is a very active lifestyle, and you can't be picky on your food because there's seasonal changes in the availability of food. You can't be intolerant to food and survive. So it's a very counter-evolutionary idea that people can be intolerant to foods naturally. And of course, as I mentioned, food intolerances are a very recent phenomena that really got underway in a big way in the 1990s. Your mom and grandma, of course, did not have these kinds of problems, and certainly the generations before them did not have food intolerances, or it was very rare. Eight years after they got married, businesswoman Martha Carlin noticed that her husband John's right pinky finger and tongue began to quiver, that he developed a stony stare and loss of the joy that he used to show. Like he was looking through me, Martha says. 
Then a doctor diagnosed her husband with Parkinson's disease. He was just 44 years old. Martha made it her mission to understand how and why this happened, a decision that changed their lives. Martha quit her job, they sold their house and drained their retirement accounts to fund efforts to uncover better answers. A turning point came in 2015, when research from a laboratory in Finland reported that people with Parkinson's disease have a unique intestinal microbiome. Subsequent research showed that the alpha-synuclein protein that accumulates in the brains of people with this disease originates in the gut. Further research in an experimental model also indicated that the non-digestible sugar, mannitol, has the ability to dissolve the alpha-synuclein protein, a critical finding. Martha, collaborating with famed academic microbiologist Dr. Raul Cano, therefore developed a collection of microbes that Dr. Cano demonstrated to collaborate with each other via what Dr. Cano calls a guild or consortium that magnifies the benefit of probiotic microbes when put together. They therefore developed a specific and unique collection of microbial species that collaborate to produce greater quantities of mannitol. It also became clear that this had the potential to reduce blood sugar, since microbes metabolize sugars, sucrose, glucose, and fructose in the gut to mannitol. Because of its blood sugar-reducing potential, they called this probiotic sugar shift. A number of followers of my program were given sugar shift for four weeks, all non-diabetics, and showed a reduction in fasting glucose of nearly 10 milligrams per deciliter. Martha and Raul also believe that the increased mannitol may exert positive effects on the alpha-synuclein protein of Parkinson's, an effect that Martha suspects may be why her husband no longer requires a cane to walk, now 26 years after his original diagnosis. This is going to be subjected to formal clinical trials in the future. I believe that Sugar Shift is one of the most interesting probiotics available. See Defiant Health's program notes below for how to find out more about BiotaQuest and Sugar Shift. Order with discount code UNDOC15 for a 15% discount. So what is it? What process underlies the development of these food intolerances? It's not to say that all food intolerances are caused by this process, but most of them are. It's a change in bowel flora. There's been dramatic shifts in the composition and the location of bowel flora. Why? Well, in modern life, in the last 50, 100 years, we've all been exposed to antibiotics. Since the discovery of penicillin in 1928, and then the proliferation of wide-spectrum antibiotics since that are dispensed too freely, even when they're not necessary. There's also antibiotic residues in our food, because antibiotics have been given to livestock to accelerate growth. There are herbicides and pesticides in our food, in the air, and the water, especially glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, you may not know that glyphosate, while it is indeed an herbicide, is also an antibiotic. There are other components of the modern diet, such as emulsifying agents like polysorbate 80 or carboxymethylcellulose, typically found in foods like salad dressings and ice cream, very disruptive over the composition of bowel flora. Synthetic sweeteners, aspartame, saccharin, and sucralose, also shown to be very disruptive to the intestinal microbiome composition. Drugs, especially the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen and naproxen, diclofenac. Statin cholesterol drugs disrupt the human microbiome. Stomach acid blocking drugs like Prilosec, Protonics, and Ranitidine, they all disrupt the human microbiome. And you know what? The list of drugs 
prescription drugs that disrupt the human microbiome is probably a lot longer than that. Unfortunately, a lot of that science has not been performed. When a drug company makes an FDA application for their drug, there's no requirement to document what kinds of changes are introduced into the human microbiome. And so most drugs, the vast majority of drugs, pass through FDA approval with no mention, no, no insight, no idea what happens to the human microbiome when you take that drug. And of course, many people have been born by C-section. About a third of all children today are born by C-section, which means they don't obtain the vaginal microbiome that's important for that infant as it passes through the birth canal. And of course, in modern life, it's very difficult for mothers to breastfeed for a full two years to help build a baby's microbiome. And so most babies by age six months, only about half, are still being breastfed. And that deprives a child of the full benefit of a mother a maternal microbiome. Well, here's a telltale sign. It's very common for people with all sorts of food intolerances, and sometimes an extraordinary long list of food intolerances, to have temporary freedom from the food intolerance after taking a course of antibiotics. Isn't that interesting? The tolerance to foods may only last a few weeks, maybe a few months, and the intolerances come back, but isn't that interesting? What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the microbiome temporarily disrupted or reduced in numbers by the antibiotic is the cause. Now, of all the forms, all the varieties of disrupted intestinal microbiome, from dysbiosis confined to the colon, the large bowel, to SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, it's probably that last situation, SIBO, that is responsible for the majority of food intolerances. And the reason for that is in colonic dysbiosis, that is disrupted bowel flora species but confined to the four or five feet of colon, the colon is less penetrable into the bloodstream because the colon has a two-layer mucus barrier and it's only four or five feet long. If unhealthy microbes from the colon proliferate, these are species that you find in stool and they're also pathogenic like E. coli and Klebsiella, if these microbes proliferate in the colon and out-muscle healthy species like lactobacillus and bifidobacteria and acromancy and other beneficial species, these unhealthy species proliferate and then climb up into the small bowel, the 24 feet of small bowel, ileum, jejunum, duodenum, and stomach. So in SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, you've got a total of 30 feet of microbes that turn over very rapidly. They only live for hours to days at most. And so there's trillions of microbes in SIBO turning over rapidly, dying, and their debris, the debris of their little bodies are pooped out. You metabolize them, other bacteria metabolize them, but some of it gets into the bloodstream. That's a process, by the way, called endotoxemia that's responsible for explaining how a condition like SIBO in the small bowel can be responsible for damaged brain, as in Parkinson's disease, or skin rash like rosacea, or joint pain like rheumatoid arthritis, or changes in your heart like atrial fibrillation or coronary disease. So SIBO, an intestinal process, can export its effects to other parts of the body via the process called endotoxemia. And the small bowel has only a single layer of mucus barrier. So when bacteria, unhealthy species, have proliferated, it erodes that fragile mucus barrier. Microbes can even invade the intestinal wall, and it's easier to generate endotoxemia and export the unhealthy effects of these microbes into other parts of the body. So how do you know when you have SIBO? Well, first of all, look at telltale signs. 
One very confident sign of SIBO is if your food intolerance develops within the first 90 minutes after you consume a food. Many people experience it almost immediately, right? They eat a pepper or beans, some form of legume, and they have gas, bloating, diarrhea, anger, anxiety, panic attacks, skin rash, asthma, all sorts of different forms of intolerance. If it happens within the first 90 minutes, it means that bacteria that are generating toxic byproducts are way up high because that food after consumption couldn't have reached the colon where bacteria are supposed to be concentrated, which is 24 feet down from your mouth. It can't get there in 90 minutes. And so if there's an intolerant reaction within the first 90 minutes, that's a very confident, virtually 100% reliable sign of SIBO as a cause for your food intolerance. Another telltale sign is the malabsorption of fat. So microbes way up high in the duodenum, just after the sum, just beyond the stomach, impairs the pancreatic enzymes and bile from breaking down fats. And you pass fat out undigested into the toilet. And you can recognize that by fat droplets floating in the water. You can also see it by staining of where the water meets porcelain. Or if your bowel movements float, if they consistently float because oil is lighter than water and it will cause your, your stool to float. Another telltale sign of SIBO, unexplained or persistent skin rashes, such as eczema. So let's say a dermatologist prescribed topical steroid for your eczema, and you do it, but it comes back after you stop it. It comes back, it comes back, or won't fully respond. That is a very good sign of intestinal dysbiosis, but especially SIBO. It can also, by the way, signal skin dysbiosis. That's a whole other conversation for another time. There are also conditions that are virtually synonymous with SIBO. If you have these conditions, you can virtually guarantee that you have SIBO. And this list includes irritable bowel syndrome, very high likelihood, fibromyalgia. There's some evidence that as many as 100% of people with fibromyalgia have SIBO. Restless leg syndrome, very high likelihood of SIBO. There are also conditions that have a very high likelihood of having SIBO, like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, history of celiac disease. If you have an autoimmune, inflammatory, or neurodegenerative condition, those also put you at very high likelihood of having SIBO. If you've participated in my wheat belly or undoctored programs by books or my online sites, and you maybe lost 47 pounds and all kinds of health problems went away, but you're left with some neurodegenerative, autoimmune, or inflammatory condition, that's persistent, now's the time to think about SIBO as the underlying cause. And then there's something called the prebiotic fiber test, what I call the prebiotic fiber test. And that is if you take something that has prebiotic fiber properties, such as inulin powder, or a raw white potato, or an unripe green banana, or legumes, if you develop intolerance, once again, within the first 90 minutes of consumption, that is diagnostic for SIBO. Now you have some other ways to confirm whether this is true. Now this is optional because if you have some of these telltale signs, many people do just fine by saying, using their best judgment and they say, you know what, I get diarrhea, bloating, headache, and a skin rash within the first 60 minutes after I consume some food, that sounds like SIBO. It would be reasonable to proceed to a program to manage and eradicate SIBO. But if you want to confirm, 
can have your doctor confirm it. Sadly, most physicians have no idea what SIBO is. The science is so new that most physicians have not kept up. Even gastroenterologists who are specialists, of course, in gastrointestinal diseases often know next to nothing about SIBO. There are exceptions, of course, I'm generalizing. But for the most part, mainstream gastroenterologists, mainstream physicians do not know what they're doing when it comes to SIBO. So you can try to ask your doctor, but don't be surprised if you get a response like there's no such thing or did you consult Dr. Google again? Ironically, the science is quite solid. There are literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of scientific studies that have documented this process called SIBO. This is not speculative. This is not the wild rant of a naturopath or integrative health practitioner. These are real phenomena. So if you ask your doctor, he or she may say, well, let's do a hydrogen breath test, maybe also with a methane breath test. And that's done in a clinic or a laboratory. It can cost you a few hundred dollars. And it's very cumbersome to perform. And it's not all that accurate depending on how it's conducted. Thankfully, if you want to confirm the presence of SIBO, there's a new consumer device, very cool device called the AIR device, A-I-R-E, made by the Food Marble Company. I'll put these names and links down below in the show notes. Now, the odd thing about the AIR device is that it detects hydrogen gas and the newest device coming out in late 2021 also detects methane gas. These are two gases produced by microbes. And so what we do is we consume a prebiotic fiber such as inulin in your coffee, and then we measure those gases in your breath over the next 90 to 180 minutes. And if you test positive, you know you have SIBO bacteria high up in the gastrointestinal tract. When If you test positive with a rise in the zero to 10 scale at let's say 120, 180 minutes, it's equivocal. It could be the distal ileum, for instance, bacteria in the distal ileum, or could simply be normal colonic fermentation yielding those gases. Oddly, as elegant as this device is, it was initially released by its inventor, a PhD engineer, Dr. Angus Short from Dublin, Ireland. He thought it was only useful for people with irritable bowel syndrome to navigate a low FODMAPs diet because his girlfriend, now wife, had that situation. Well, I called Dr. Short and said, this is actually a device to identify food intolerances in many forms. And so he and his company are going to change the instructions. But for the present, I therefore developed a protocol for a more comprehensive look at food intolerances. But that's beyond the scope of this podcast. If you're interested in that, see my Wheat Belly blog, see my Undoctored Inner Circle website, or see my book coming out in February 2021 called Super Gut that has the entire protocol. It's very simple, but you have to know what you're doing. There's a day before prep, there's a baseline value, and then consumption of prebiotic fiber, and then serial testing every 30 to 45 minutes. And if you test positive, a rise in four units or more, you know you've got SIBO, either of the hydrogen gas producing variety or the methane gas producing variety. Now, let me give you just a brief overview of the options you have in managing this. If you test positive by the air device or you have one of those telltale signs that suggest strongly you have SIBO, or perhaps you have one of those conditions like restless leg syndrome or fibromyalgia that is virtually synonymous with SIBO, what are your choices? Well, you could take a conventional antibiotic. The most common one in doctors who know what they're doing is rifaximin, which is quite expensive, about $1,200, not covered by insurance. And it's effective about 40 to 60% of the time. So it's not that good. Unfortunately, when it's prescribed by a doctor, that's about all you get. You don't get any conversation typically about why you got this condition, what you can do to increase the effectiveness of that antibiotic, and what you can do to prevent the common recurrences that develop over the ensuing months and years. So another choice is to take an herbal antibiotic regimen. Now, there's only two 
herbal antibiotic regimens that have been validated via clinical studies, the candibactin regimen and the FC-cytal dysbiocide regimen. I wouldn't recommend that you do this all by yourself. I would recommend you do this with some kind of assistance, help of a functional medicine doctor, integrative health doctor, by Undoctor Inner Circle, where we collaborate through our forum, our virtual meetups, and other functions where we talk to each other and share experiences. But you do have choices of two very good herbal antibiotic regimens, which are at least as effective and probably more effective than the conventional antibiotic rifaximin. But there's a new option, I believe. It's preliminary. But I used some basic logic. If you take a conventional probiotic to eradicate SIBO, will it work? Usually not. It might reduce some bloating. It might have a little bit of a beneficial effect. But SIBO is still there, so it's not potent enough. And the reason behind that is that commercial probiotics are crafted in a haphazard way. Commercial probiotics are just a slapdash collection of microbes believed to be healthy. They're not chosen for their effects against SIBO species. So let's ask a different question. What if we chose, what if we curated species and strains of bacteria that we believe would be more effective against the species and locations of SIBO. So let's choose bacteria, for instance, that colonize the upper GI tract where SIBO occurs. Let's choose species and strains that produce what are called bactericins. These are natural antibiotics made by bacteria effective against the species of SIBO, like E. coli and Klebsiella. So I put the other three microbes Lactobacillus gasseri, Lactobacillus roteri, and Bacillus coagulans, specific strains. We ferment, we co-ferment it as yogurt for 36 hours. That gives us typically counts in the, over 200 billion, often as high as 300 billion. Over 90% of people who've consumed this SIBO yogurt have converted by the air device to normal levels of hydrogen gas. The methane gas measurement's too new to know how effective it'll be against that. We'll know in future. So I think you have a very good choice. Now, in my conversations, we also talk about how to increase the efficacy, how to increase the likelihood you have a successful result and eradicate SIBO. We also talk about ways to reduce the potential for recurrences because recurrences are very troublesome, can cause a lot of aggravation, a lot of discomfort. So we talk about how to use probiotics, lactobacillus roteri yogurt, prebiotic fibers, fermented foods in an intelligent way to prevent recurrence. But the focus of this podcast episode is to make you aware that if you have a food intolerance, don't stop with just avoiding that food. What if you do choose to do that? Just avoid the food, but don't bother to look for evidence or to validate whether or not you have SIBO. Well, think of the food intolerance as a warning sign. It's telling you that bad things from your uncorrected SIBO are down the road. Changes such as weight gain, obesity, high blood pressure, coronary disease, atrial fibrillation, rosacea, psoriasis, fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, neurodegenerative You get the idea? It is not a good idea to ignore the underlying SIBO causing this. It is a modern epidemic. By my back-of-the-envelope calculations, I, I estimate that well over 100 million Americans have SIBO and the surface expression can be a food intolerance. Now, if you've learned something from this podcast, I invite you to post a review, share it with your friends, subscribe through your favorite podcast directory, and support this movement of self-empowered health. Thanks for listening.